Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Happy Mother's Day and welcome to E3 Church. My name is Pastor Scott. We're going to be getting into time of message, but a little bit of a background on the Why series before we jump all the way in is that these are your questions that were submitted over several weeks and even months that we have prayerfully tried to answer, and they're hard questions. Y'all get a round of applause for some awesome questions that you gave to us. And some of the questions were kind of difficult to wrestle with. For example, next week, Pastor Michael will be talking through why do bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people. But the point of this today is we're going into denominations is this was the least aggressive for Mother's Day. We didn't want to talk about pain and suffering on Mother's Day. So that's why we're choosing denominations, so to speak, today. And excited to jump in there because it is a topic that has a lot of implications for us as Christians and for Christendom. Now, The other announcement I want to give is Wise Council nominations are due next week. So if you are prayerfully considering someone for Wise Council, please drop those in the uh, pyramid, the offering pyramid as you leave. There's little slips of paper. The other side does say why questions. If you have more why questions, we're, we're not wasting any slips of paper here at E3 Church. You can for sure put those in the pyramid, and we are collecting those for the next time we do this sermon series because I'd love to do it again. There's some more questions in the wings that you all have that are awesome questions. So with that in mind, why denominations? Well, Ginger did a great job reading a really difficult passage from John. The Bible doesn't give us precedent, doesn't give us an example of why we should have denominations in Christianity. But just by a show of hands, how many of you have been impacted by a denomination at some point in your life? Keep your hands up just for a second. Look around the room. This is nearly everybody. And even now you can say, well, I'm a part of a non-denominational church at E3. I'm attending a church right now, so all of you technically could raise your hand. But the point of this is, is that we all have some denominational baggage. Can we just exhale a little bit and realize, and realize that we're not going to be bashing denominations? My goal this morning is not to be throwing denominational poo like a teenage monkey at a zoo all over denominations. I personally have a lot of baggage. I was both a ordained pastor in the Reformed Church of America, the RCA, which is kind of Presbyterian-y, and I was also a pastoral appointment in the United Methodist Church for a very brief period as I went through denominational seminary in the United Methodist Church. There is a lot of difficulty with denominations as as, as a whole. And being a part of numerous denominations, even in non-church settings, I was a part of a Southern Baptist church. (gasps) And I worked for Boys Town, which is a Roman Catholic institution. (gasps) Right? I mean, the, the spectrum doesn't get much wider than that. Well, it does, actually. But let's just pretend those are pretty wide. I have seen and, and, and honestly have been a part of a lot of the ugliness that denominations can bring. And the challenge is that we do not see a biblical backing for them. So to set the proverbial table for denominations, I want to play a game. And I almost chose denominational jeopardy, but I realized as I wrote the questions that none of us would actually get them and we'd all be staring blankly at one another and then the buzzer would go off in jeopardy, which is the ultimate sign of disrespect. Those of you who watch Jeopardy goes, right? That's that's awful. So instead, we're going to play a different, different game, and this game is called Higher or Lower. That's the cue the applause. Hi, I'm Pastor Scott. Welcome to E3 Church. 
Today we're talking about denominations and we're gonna play the game higher or lower. There it is. If you like Price is Right, this is your game. Now, the contestant who I want to look for is somebody whose birthday is today. This weekend? <laughs> the first person to raise their hand is my contestant. Somebody said Mike. Mike Overstreet, please come on up here. <laughs> Round of applause for Mike Overstreet, ladies and gentlemen. In junior high, I'll pick on Adam later. Mike, I'm gonna give you some facts about denominations. I need you to tell me if it's higher or lower than the number I'll provide, and for help, they'll be on the screen right in front of you. You know, you know that screen pretty well. Okay, never seen it before in your life. Pastor Mike is our associate pastor here, a pastor of teaching and small groups. So if you're interested in a small group or growth group, talk to Mike after the service. Number of denominations in the world right now, higher or lower than 127? Oh, higher. He is right. <laughs> we roughly have 180 broad denominations, but legally and technically, we have over 20,000 denominations in the world right now. Yes, 20,000. Mike, yeah. higher or lower? Professing Roman Catholics, 1.78 million. You are correct. There's actually 2.6, or sorry, 1.35 billion Roman Catholics. Altogether, there are 2.6 billion Christians in the world. They, they go to more than just Christmas and Easter, too. I don't. Fair enough. Mike, annual offering budget of the United Methodist Church in 2015. Higher or lower than 100 or 200 million dollars? Sorry, 200 million for one year. Uh, higher. Sorry, you're incorrect. Oh, no. Incorrect. The annual operating budget for the United Methodist Church in 2015 was 1.128 million dollars. 128 million. The annual endowment fund for the Church of England in 2017 higher or lower than 206 million dollars? Lower. And I, my trick worked. It's higher. I'm going to say this number slowly, $10.3 billion. What? Church of England, make it rain. All right. What's our budget? Close to that. Close to that. I'm so glad you were volunteered to come up here. Number of missionaries in the Southern Baptist Church, higher or lower than 5,525? Probably higher. They love dollars. You're wrong. 3,667 full-time missionaries across the world in the Southern Baptist Church right now. I know. We have more than that just by ourselves. We're all missionaries, right? Okay, okay. Back on fo focus. Focus, Pastor Scott. Number of Lutheran seminaries, higher or lower than 12? You want to ask the PewDiePie audience for some help? Okay. There's 11. Sorry. Lower. Presbyterian, higher or lower than 12? There's a lot of Presbyterians out there. Yeah, you're right. 38. Non-denominational seminaries higher, lower than 12. Infinitely higher. There's over 100 non-denominational seminaries out there. And Mike, higher or lower on Mother's Day for this bouquet of flowers bought at Walmart last night by me at the 11th hour for the victory, higher or lower than $5? I'm going to go lower. You are correct, it was $3.75. This is your parting gift. Round of applause for Mr. Mike Overstreet, everyone. Okay, so.
to set the stage, well done, by the way, to set the stage, there is a lot, there's a lot of stuff when it comes to denominations. People, money, resources, buildings, seminaries, where you train pastors. There is a lot in denominations that makes it incredibly and increasingly complex. And I want to transition because the reason why we are here today is all because of church history in terms of denominations. So I'm going to do my best Ben Stein impersonation and just read off random historical facts as boring as I can. (laughs) In actuality, I want to get everybody involved a little bit in this because it can become extremely boring going through a lot of church history courses like I have. So I want to involve all of us in understanding and organizing what church history is and why it has created all of these denominations. Over 180 broad denominations, like I said, 20,000 plus legal denominations out there in the world today. Can we help me out, please, E3 Church? All right. Thanks, Mike. (laughs) We're going to start over here, okay? This is Jesus is over here. Over here is today. There's a spectrum that starts from Jesus, who is around 30-ish AD, all the way over to, what year is it? 2020. Thank you. I'm going to strip over the carpet 100 times. I'm starting over here, okay? People are going to stand up along the way as we go through history. Around in here, if we go from 30 to 2022, this is around 1,000-ish AD. Make sense? And we're going to be standing up. So there is no preconceived typecasting when I call out who you are. For sure, I'm going to make Adam some sort of villain. But the purpose of this is to give us some context of who and why and where and when we became who we are. So I need about 12 volunteers, and you're going to be volunteered right now. Man, will you please stand up? <laughs> this is the early church. Everyone say, hi, early church. Hi. Now, right from Jesus, he dies, he's resurrected. He goes to 12 disciples and a lot of women, and he says, go, you are now the church. You are now inspired, equipped. And this thing called the Holy Spirit comes down, and the early church is born. Now, the early church is not what you may expect as you're sitting here today. The early church did not have a bunch of powerful, wealthy people who were funding it. They're not billion-dollar endowments in the early church. The early church was primarily made up of the poor, of the disenfranchised, and women. It was orphans, widows, who were part of this early church. For the very beginning of the church, it was a very small group of crazy people who loved Jesus Christ. And man, they did miracles. They did unbelievable things for their early history. Now, around 200 AD, the initial 12 disciples live, they die. The 12 disciples after them, it's not that 12 disciples, the disciples after them, there wasn't 12, it wasn't 12 plus 12. The hundreds of disciples who followed those 12 disciples, they have died. And around the 200s, they start grappling with some of the theological nuances that come a part of the religion. They identify themselves, we're not Jewish. And in fact, we are a totally new religion that is on the scope of mankind. But they didn't have understandings of all the particular theologies that we do today. You just keep half sin. <laughs> Don't you dare sit down early, church. <laughs> Until everything changes. Man, will you sit up, please? In 312, right here. Yes, 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 absolutely. In 312, which is 300 years into the history of the church, Constantine comes on the scene. Everyone say hi, Constantine. Now, Constantine is an amazing Roman Empire emperor. Constantine has this vision, though, as a Roman emperor who is not a Christian. His mom, we believe, was a Christian. We're not sure. And he has this vision that on the shield of the Roman army, that there will 
Everything is revolving around this Roman army to put the letters of Jesus Christ on them. And guess what? Constantine wins the battle. So Constantine says, hey, I had this dream to do this, and there's this whole religion that's based upon this. So guess what? Every Roman person, you are now a Christian. It does work like that, right? It would, it would be like this, and, and this is the, the, not perfect, but it's close. Imagine, regardless of political affiliation, the president of the moment says, if you become a member of a Christian church and you have the membership certificate, you don't pay taxes at all. Can, yes, biggest conversion day ever. Thank you, Adam. I'm coming at you, man. Biggest conversion day ever. Can you imagine how many people we'd have flooding through these doors asking to be part of the ownership class? Sorry, you have to wait three months for our bylaws, okay? The, the issue is, is that so many people follow Constantine, and Constantine does such an amazing job of just setting the new standard that the church is overwhelmed. But because of the overwhelming nature of Constantine's edict, we see that instead of being persecuted, the church is protected by the government. The Roman army, the most powerful army in the world at that time, protects them. And we have people named Athanasius and St. Anthony and Augustine and other men whose name starts with A who come on the scene and they preach and they do great theology work. And we see that this is both a blessing and a curse because, sir, will you please stand up? That's you. In 476, the barbarians say, hi, barbarians. I'm not typecasting this at all. The, the barbarians come and they invade Rome and they sack Rome and Rome burns. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, the barbarians spare one institution in Rome, the church. See, the barbarians living in what is today present-day Germany were evangelized and they were told that Jesus is who Jesus is. And so these believers who want to destroy Rome spare the church. And so guess where all the people go? To the church. The church protects them where the emperor couldn't. We see that in 476, this is a huge change in church history. Now, life kind of goes pretty much normal. We get these cool things called knights and, and all these fun things, and the Middle Ages happen, and there's not a lot in church history that happens for this section until we get to Walter. Will you please stand up? You are now officially the Roman Catholic Church. Everyone say, hi, Roman Catholic Church. Adam, you're all the way in the back. Stand up, please. Adam, I know some of you can't see him over there. He's in the back. They're far apart as I can get in this room. They should be farther, theoretically. But Adam is now the uh, Orthodox Church. I just had this moment of, a moment of, of, of great confusion. The Orthodox Church. Say hi, Orthodox Church, by the way. Yes, we're already getting bored, and I'm trying to keep interactive, folks, okay? You all ask this question. Now, the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Church are so separate, and they come and they split apart for a variety of hundreds of years of reasons. Mainly, it's because of language. The Orthodox Church picks more of the Greek. The Roman Catholic Church picks more of Latin. The Roman Catholic Church believes that Rome is the center of all of Christianity, and they have this person called the Pope. The Eastern Orthodox Church says, no. Sorry, we should have the pastors of every city where we have a church be the leader of that particular city or congregation. There's all sorts of other reasons why that none of you want to get into because it would be so boring and you'd just fall asleep on Mother's Day, which is not very fun, okay? So here's the point, is that this is the first split of denominations. 
You three, thank you for standing up. You may sit down. You two have to stand the rest of the service. Okay. (laughs) Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, they split. And we see that for the next hundred-ish years, the biggest black eye on Christianity is that we do these things called the Crusades. If you want to be depressed, research the Children's Crusade. It's depressing. A bunch of children come up and they say, hey, let's give them swords and and shields and we're going to go take Rome. And then they marched them into slavery. Yeah, that's gay Christianity. Okay, these two are the two main forces of Christianity for hundreds of years, these dark ages. Until we get into around the 1400s. And this thing called the Great Enlightenment or the Renaissance occurs. And during the Renaissance, I have no idea where my notes, just so you know. Around the 1300s, 1400s, a guy named Johann Gutenberg makes the printing press and he starts printing this thing called the Bible that common people can read even though most people are illiterate. And we see that in 1517, there is a great man who's also a priest in the Roman Catholic Church named Martin Luther who arrives on the scene. Luther sees a guy named Setzel who's a funny name and it sounds like pretzel. And Setzel walks around asking people to buy forgiveness because he can charge them whatever he wants to charge them. And so he asks, hey, I know that you over there make 17000 and I know you make $100 million, so your sins are actually more expensive than your sins. And he starts robbing to pay off the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church today does not practice this as far as I know. Thank you for laughing. Martin Luther. Mallory, would you be feeling Martin Luther? This is your dream come true. Martin Luther arrives on the scene. He says, I can't handle this anymore. He writes theses. He nails them to a door. And he begins the second great split of the church into denominational branches. Roman Catholic, Martin Luther. Lutheranism is born. Now behind Lutheranism is another denomination. Please stand. It happens very organically, but also kind of choppy, where this guy named, again, I'm out of my notes here. I have no idea. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin comes on the scene. And John Calvin comes in the middle 1700s. Everyone say, hi, John. Hi, John. I know that's not your name. John comes on the scene, and he, from an academic side, creates Calvinism which has offshoots both in Reformed and then all Presbyterianism and also this thing called Arminianism is born out of his brain, more or less. He makes these things called the Institutes. Lastly, around this time, we have in the... uh, John Stott, I got to pick on you a little bit. John's going to stand up. Everyone say, hi, Henry VIII. Again, not typecasting. Not typecasting. This is the part of the service where you go, okay, this seems a little bit like a little, you know, greasy seedy part of a soap opera. Yes, it is, okay? Henry VIII has six wives, okay? He does, gets the first wife, can't have a male heir, so he says, hey, I need to divorce her, and he comes up with a cockamamie excuse, comes and asks the Roman Catholic Church, and they say, okay, fine. But after the, you know, the third or fourth divorce and beheading of his wives, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church can only do so much. So he says, oh, I'll create my own church. And the Church of England is born. Now, the Church of England has a lot of bad things about it in its infancy, but it's one of the most powerful churches in the world today, and an awesome church today, of course. But it's interesting that two churches are born out of theological exercise and and, and disagreement, and one church is born because he needs to have another divorce. We see that in this time period, all of these three major branches of Christianity represent a lot of what happens, but there's also miniature splits that happen along the way as well. These Anabaptists come along and they say, hey, baptism is a thing that we need to be saved and cleanse us of sin. So they just keep baptizing people. Every single day people are getting baptized because they're just worried that they might have sinned. 
that's theologically accurate. No. It is during this time also we see a great number of conflicts. So look at each other just for a moment. Out of these two branches in particular, sorry, over here to Mallory. You don't, we don't care about him back there anymore, okay? <laughs> Out of these two in particular, we see the 30 years war erupt. 30 years of war. And not just war, I mean it is war over the entire German landscape. From 1618 to 1648, the entirety of the, the European continent is war because in the name of Christianity. We see back there with Henry VIII as his descendants come about. We have these people called the Puritans and the people called the Pilgrims. And now you're like, oh yeah, I know Pilgrims. The Nina, the Sinte, and the Pinta Marina, right? <laughs> those, 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 those three ships, yeah. And you know that, that, that from the Church of England, we see that people come to the United States to find religious freedom in those names. Now, from all of these four denominations, we see every single denomination comes to the New World, to Americas, and starts their own different versions of Christianity. And that gets us into the 1700s. Jay, we stand up, please? <laughs> people like John Wesley in the 1700s had this version of the first great awakening. And John Wesley creates a whole new denomination called Methodism and all the branches thereof of Methodism. And they start in the United States creating more and more excitement. And there's whole missionary movement that somehow we can go tell the entire world about Jesus is born. And all of these people are working towards doing that. Now, if just everyone behind Jay can stand up, All of these denominations really flourish, but also divide during these 1700s to 1800s time. We have the first great awakening, and then we have something called the second great awakening, all happening around the United States. And you all divide and split up mainly because of the color of the church carpet. <laughs> Surprise. Little nuances like that, but also huge theological differences. And we even see that there's a lot of heresies that erupt during this time. Churches that are born that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ and hard theological concerns that happened during that time. We see groups like some of the Adventists, the Holiness Movement, and the seeds of Pentecostalism are grown during this time. And so many other churches are made. Now, all the way over, it's so dark back there. In the very back corner, will you stand up, sir? Here's, here's us. We're a non-denominational church who says, we see what happened before and we think we can do it a little bit differently. Not better, but a little bit differently. That takes the entire church history lesson that I did in only 13 minutes to a close. Round of applause for everyone who stood and who sat during this time. You may be seated. Here's the point. You have to understand a little bit of church history to understand why denominations. But they're not all evil, not all bad. Why denominations? They show the spiritual gifts of God's people in mass. It's the first takeaway. They show the spiritual gifts of God's people in mass. If you look across the entire church landscape today, certain denominations tend to be a certain virtue or, or, or aspect of Jesus Christ. I look at the, the Reformed denomination, and it's a little heady. There's another word for that, too. 
but, but, they're, but they're a little academic-y. The Methodists, in contrast, are a little bit more servant-oriented-minded, and they're sending out all these different service organizations. If you look over and you say, hey, the Southern Baptist Church, while you may or may not agree with some of the things that they do, they send out missionaries more fully accredited and trained than any other denomination. They are the feet of Jesus. And we see that these different denominations take on various different aspects of Jesus' body in mass. Each church has every single version of the spiritual gifts of Jesus' body that Paul illustrates so well in all of his letters that we tend to just focus in a mass based on our common purpose. Feet generally like to be with feet, eyes with eyes, hands with hands. The limitations of that, of course, is that when you get a denomination who's so focused on one thing, they forget the rest of the bodies out there and they become pompous. They say, I don't need the stomach. I'm an eye. And that's not good for Jesus' body. Secondly, why denominations? They show the vine rooted in Christ flowing from groups of people over time. If we start all the way over, thank you for standing, by the way, with the infant church, Jesus plants this vine. In the gospel of John, he says, I am the tender of the vine, and he also is the vine. And so Jesus lives in every single denomination as it goes across all of humanity. And Jesus also tends and prunes and plucks and restores and binds together these different tentacles of denominations over the whole history of church history and the history of humanity. I was going to use, and I had it all set up, and it was really going to be really cool, these stanchions that I had laying down. I was going to tie yarn to all these stanchions and bring them up and show that, and then the Roman Catholic Church came up on the, the scene. And, and it just works so much better with people. Because when we think about denominations, it takes away the people aspect and the, and the humanity and the soul aspect that these are real people and real souls who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And when we think about, oh, those Methodists, or oh, those Baptists, or oh, those Roman Catholics, or I don't even know what an Orthodox is, we tend to lose our ecumenism and that we are all in this together. Friends, the point is this, is that if we are all in this fine together, we have to get used to that we're gonna be spending time in God's mansion and it's not based on wings of like there's a Southern Baptist wing and you have a pool. And there's a Methodist wing and you have a library. Oh. <laughs> we're all in this, this mansion together. We cohabitate and we're going to spend eternity together. So we have to turn our minds around saying, well, the denominations is evil. No, people are made in God's image and they're meant to be saved and brought together. And so while in this life we tend to dissect and to label people, we all end up in the hands and the very good grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that is truly impactful and inspiring. And I believe that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, does this in a way with such common elements that transforms our entire view of life. See, on that night, he took bread and a cup of wine at the Passover meal, and he reinterprets these as signs of unity that anyone who drinks and eats of them is transformed. It's no longer themselves, but it's very much the person of Jesus Christ living inside of them.
Here at Element 3 Church, we have an open table. You don't have to be a member of this church, an owner of this church, or of any church. But if you profess that Jesus is Lord, you're welcome at our table. From an administrative side, we have four stations set up. We have a station here for this group. We have a station here for these people. Over here, we have this station for the front half of this side. And then back at our communion altar in front of the cross, we have a station set up. We would love for you to take your time and to prepare your hearts and mind before you come up and take the elements. What I'd like you to do is to come up, grab a cup of bread and a cup of juice. All of it is gluten-free. And then hold them, hold them. Throughout the song we'll hear in a moment, and we'll take the elements together. I'd invite you to prepare your hearts, your minds, your very souls as we do this sign of unity as one church body. I wanna pray over us before we do. Father, I thank you that even though we have so many divisions, so many nuances to our worldview, that you are a God who comes and restores all things in the name of Jesus Christ. And that even is how we look at one another. They were not labels of different types of denominational names, but we are truly one in the name of Jesus Christ. We prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls as we take and eat your body, your blood at this time. We pray your blessing over these elements and the hands which receive them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The table is open. Please come. Come.